Hey, welcome to another great message from Mr. Christian Outreach Church. We pray you'll be inspired and equipped by this teaching. For more information on Noosa Christian Outreach Church, please check out our website at noosacoc.org.au. Enjoy. asked the Lord what I should share today and I have the passage of scripture but before I turn to the scriptures I want to go through a list with you and just describe some people that I've seen and character qualities I've seen in them uh, that I shall remember all my life so I'm going to begin with that many years ago I met a Maori lady called Pearl Pearl was middle-aged overweight always smiling. She was like, uh, in Alabama, they would call her a big black mama. She was so motherly. And you felt the presence of the Lord around her. Here was a lady who had loved God and it leaked out of every pore. I had somebody at my house yesterday and we were talking about people who are steady for Christ, witnesses for Christ. And Very often it's not your witnessing that counts, it's who you are and what God has made you. That without trying, you simply are a sign. Because there's been a previous work of God in you and it shows. And it's been my privilege over the many years, 45 years of ministry, that I've come across people often who just have something around them of God because they've spent time feasting on him and adoring him, and beholding him, we're changed, and we become like him, and Pearl had that. Pearl lived over a shop, and she had a daughter she was bringing up alone, and she opened her flat to street people, and there were many people who'd been bitterly rejected, and they'd lived sly and feral and streetwise. They knew how to pick pockets, they knew how to hide their drugs, they knew how to come off best in a fight. Some of them were ladies. But they would go to Pearl knowing they could be loved, knowing there was no rejection in that flat, knowing that she would feed them great feasts of soy chicken and give them Bible verses as they ate. And if I would look back over those 45 years of hundreds of people, thousands of people, in uh, over 50 countries, she stands out as one of the great leaders of love. Yet she went to a church where the pastor was racist and where he saw people of color as being second class and he let her know it. And basically the way he treated her and spoke to her was that she could never really rate as a first class Christian because of her color. And and she told me, and there was a certain brokenness, but it didn't stop her loving the love of God. And when I have looked up in Scripture the word agapeo, which we translate love, uh, how it's used in secular Greek literature of Bible times, uh, 
It means a persistent affection that does not stop even when it is not returned. And that's lovely. I mean, as Christians, we've lassoed it, we've seconded the word, we've chosen the word, we've invested it with our meaning, and the Apostle Paul's one of the big culprits, and there's nothing wrong with that. He did take classical words and give them a meaning that he kept them to, and this is one of the words that he uses, and so did the Apostle John. They used this word, and so normally when we talk about agape, love, we talk about that's God's love. But in ancient Greece, it wasn't just God's love. It was, it was stubborn love that is not easily dissuaded, loving the unjust as well as the just. Uh, in Hebrew, there's a word like it, but it is a bit different, chesed, which is covenant love, and which you cannot have for somebody you're not in covenant with and you show covenant love to God because you're walking in covenant with him because you're walking on the basis of a holy oath and a holy agreement uh, this commitment releases love so uh, in the Jewish language uh, when you are attracted to a woman there's a word for that kind of love but when you're committed to a woman there's another word because the commitment has released another depth of love that was not there without the commitment. And, and uh, when you are in covenant with her, you're betrothed or later married, uh, then you can fully realize chesed, covenant love, the word we translate love and kindness or mercy. It's only possible when you're walking in faithful covenant, which says a lot about the sheer faithfulness of love. And there's something about godly love when you come across it it's unforgettable it's unforgettable it's just so different to normal love I, uh, there's a particular pastor who used to love me he never answers any calls never answers any texts so he's become a, a high and mighty mover and shaker and he regards me as small fry and I, I think of him and I, th- I feel sad for him because I think you, it's not just whether he's withdrawn his love from me it's that he doesn't know what God's love is <laughs> He thinks it's temporary. He thinks we just select a few people and love those and withdraw from others. And God's love is not like the really understood agape love is the love of the family of God that never ceases and is never withdrawn. And I saw that in Pearl's life. I don't know if Pearl's alive or not now because it was so many years ago. Um, Getting towards 50 years. So she may be dead But if she is, she's gone up and she's surrounded by the love that she already showed before she went. And so I think of her. Then there's another kind of love in Scripture. That's philia, from which we get the word Philadelphia, and from which we get the word philanthropy, meaning you you give in a brotherly, sisterly way because you treat other people like the great family of mankind. And, And it's been my privilege to be friends with Tim Mitchell, who uh, was a school chaplain, and at times when I've had no money, he's given me $100 or $50, or at times when I've been discouraged, he's come over to the house and prayed with me, not to minister to the fallen, but just because he's my brother, and he feels like a brother. Sean and Jody have always treated me like a brother, and it's wonderful that it's not all bathed in Christianese. It's not sickly sweet Christian love, you know, sometimes Christian love is soppy, yucky bucket of honey that makes you puke. You know, I, but 
sentimental love is not really love. It's sentiment. And very often with sentimental love, the person who's declaring love is basically declaring what they would like. It's their hunger. It's not love. It's not connection. But Sean and Jody and I, Tim and I, have love. And we delight in each other. We, it doesn't mean we don't irritate each other. I'm sure we do. Uh, or, I, or Luke Brundle, in who greets everybody with a hug. But there's something about brotherly love, sisterly love, how the world wants it. It's great that God loves us from heaven, but you need a human arm around your shoulder. You need connection. And people will pay stupid prices for fellowship. Often the attraction of the clubs or even just sleeping around promiscuity, very often it's the desire to be held, the desire to be dear to somebody somewhere. The idea that somebody somewhere regards you as one of them, my people. And that's philia. And I've seen that. I have a friend who's a surgeon in... um, Where is he? Mount Isa, who every week sends me $300. And when I don't have meetings or income, I at least know that will be there. And he needn't give it to me. That's time out of his life. That's money he could have assigned to something else. But he does it because of philia. I'm his brother. He's my brother. And... Of course, the time comes when I can give to somebody too. And it's not just giving money or time or attention. It's simply the way you regard each other, that you regard each other as you are not an alien, you're not a stranger, you're not an outcast, you're my brother, you're my sister. There's something there. And it doesn't have anything to do with the amount of time you spend with each other. Uh, There's a mistaken notion that people don't love you unless they give you their time or their attention, and it's nonsense. It's just simply not true. Uh, David and Jonathan in scripture had a wonderful love for each other of philia, brotherly love, where they'd found each other. They weren't physically brothers, they weren't from the same parents, but they had a brotherhood and a bond that was so utterly deep that David could say it was higher than the love of women. It was an amazing statement. And yet, when Jonathan dies, David says, Has he got any children I could bless for his sake? They are not close enough that David knows who Jonathan's children are. And there are people who can be significant to you, dear to you, uh, and you don't necessarily know all their family stories or business, but they still are dear to you, and you still have filia for them. And this is quite important because the Bible tells us that we're to have family love for each other. It doesn't mean that we're to be involved in the intimate details of each other's life nonstop, and it doesn't mean that there has to be constant communication. It means it's more about the significance of the other person to you. And if I would think about that, I have wonderful brotherly and sisterly love flowing towards me and around me all through the world. There are people in Norway, Sweden. There's men in Norway, for example, um, who, who I love very much. And he says, I'm praying God will bring you to me. I love that. And when I'm feeling rejected, I remember him and think there's somebody praying that I could come to him. And I haven't been able to. I've got another friend who I love very much with the same sort of love. 
and uh, he's presently in prison for murder. He murdered his wife and uh, chopped her up, and uh, it, he got caught. And I'm utterly amazed because I think of this man and I think of who he was and how I knew him, and I never saw any violence of any kind. But one thing I know for sure, God has no problem loving him. God has no desire to reject him. He can restore him. He can go, I plan to go to him and visit him and tell him that and tell him, look, you haven't stopped being my brother. What you've done is dreadful, but it isn't the end. It doesn't have to be the end. It could be. You could lie down under it. What you've done is unforgivable with human beings. But with God, there's still the possibility of mercy. It's amazing, but it's true. It was a bit of a shock. I only found out two days ago that he'd done it. Uh, There's another thing I've seen with people. I was talking to a man in C3, and he was saying, you know, the thing that I most value about you, and this is not pride speaking because God did the work, not me. But he said, when I first got saved, you stood for something. And these many years later, you still stand for it. And he's talking about perseverance. And something I've learned about perseverance, perseverance is like building your house on a spring. It wouldn't matter how much you try and arrange the drainage. The water's still coming up from underground, and you'll have rising damp and mold in your walls because the problem is the spring. And Jesus said that when you follow him, there'll be a well within you welling up unto everlasting life. One of the most wonderful discoveries of Christian life is that you think that your power to hold on is gone. And you discover there is something called the perseverance of the saints. That God actually gives you the ability to persevere. And you look at your life 20 years down the line thinking, I didn't think I'd last this long, but I'm still here. And you're still here because of the great faithfulness of God at work within you that you can't take credit for. There are many young couples who think they'll die when their children are teething and they won't live on that much sleep, but you survive. I remember Ray Comfort telling me about how he phoned his mother when his son was teething, saying, thank you for not drowning me in a bucket. And It's a persevering love. It's interesting the word that's used in Greek for perseverance in the New Testament. It means to stay committed and stay focused and keep holding on or adhering to something, not giving up. And, uh, and that's, that's what the perseverance of God is like when it's in your life, is that you, you just go, how wonderful this thing is stable. <laughs> I'm not. My emotions are not. My soul is not stable. But my spirit is saved and I have eternal life. And I have a God who never changes and whose character never changes. And the gospel's true. And the world is full of things that come and go, change and decay, and all around I see help of the helpless oh, abide with me. There's something eternal. And it's in me. <laughs> it's wonderful. It's not something I've got to adopt and sweat and strain and try and put into myself. It's something I've been given. Perseverance. But like every provision you're given, you can either take hold of it or you can ignore it. You can let it function or you can quench it. There is another area 
self-control. Of course, Galatians 5, 21 and 22 gives a list of fruit of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. And one of the results of contact with the Holy Spirit on a regular basis is that fruit appears in your life. And one of the fruits is self-control. And that's the willingness to practice some inhibiting behaviors and govern yourself and deny yourself and say no to certain things. And that's not always easy, but fortunately there's Holy Ghost aid to self-control. And uh, just recently I was in a bookstore and I saw a postcard of a, a dog cartoon that was looking at a roast chicken on a table with such longing but it wasn't his and he wanted it so badly and so I wrote inside the card what you desire is not always what's on the menu from God but he feeds you with his chosen food but you can't always reach for something just because it seems delectable and later in the day I had somebody visit me uh, who has an area of illicit desire and who loved the card because it spoke to him with a prophetic word of what we desire is not always what we should have but it doesn't mean God won't give you a good thing but it might not be the good thing that you think you should have and self-control is when you can say I want that but I'm not going to take it and uh, I know many people who practice it Michael Green in England uh, was known for his disciplined Christian life the way he prayed early in the morning and at night and uh, it wasn't a fleshly zeal, it was just he was really dedicated to God and very disciplined. I used to love the navigators and the people in that movement because there was such a disciplined approach towards God, full of self-control. People were simply taught, if you really want to go on with God, you have to learn to govern your own behavior. And you have to select and choose some life and say, I'll have that, but not that. And you live that way. And you do that when you refuse adultery, you know, uh, often the gay issue is very confused because the gay people will say, oh, I think I was born this way and I've got this desire. But you can still say no to your desire in the same way that a married man might be tempted to commit adultery. It doesn't mean it's inevitable. Just because the desire is there, you can still say no to it. And I've known people who have said no to wrong desires very successfully, very consistently over a long period, and they're blessed because of it. Here's another quality, knowledge. If I think of who exemplifies knowledge to me, I'll just keep an eye on the time, I think of Dr. Derek Prince. I think that man knew the scriptures like few others. And I remember uh, when he died, I didn't go to the funeral, but I loved him very much. And there was a particular lady who had had a dream a few nights before he died. And in it, she heard this wild applause in heaven. She heard this clapping, this fantastic uh, jubilation, this great honoring. You know, sometimes in church we Pentecostals love to clap the speaker and some of it's fawning on him in an ungodly way and some of it's good. You know, it's all mixed because we're on earth. But in heaven, uh, praise is perfect. Applause is sincere. And this lady asked an angel next to her, who are they applauding? And she was told, Derek is coming home. And he died and he went home. 
Now, what's really interesting in that is that I read in the Bible that God has got a, a particular course of action, a particular pathway, that if you follow it, you get what is called an abundant entrance into his kingdom. And the word used in Greek means to enter like a rich man, a wealthy person coming into his wealthy house, or like a victorious athlete coming to the applause that he has rightly earned. And that's what's offered to you, an abundant entrance into God's kingdom. So it's absolutely fantastic. And then the last thing on my list is moral excellence. And I think of Dr. Billy Graham. I think of how he stayed out of uh, lust situations. He never picked up a female hitchhiker without somebody else with him. Uh, he interviewed people with his office door open. He went the extra mile. He was not only moral, he was excellently moral. And he left a good uh, legacy behind him and a good testimony behind him. And there are so many others who haven't. Uh, there are so many Pentecostal leaders who were secret sinners, who devastated people, broke their lives, and left an aftermath. And some of them were famous, famous people. But you look at the long list and just go, how sad. How really, really sad. Now, all of this is going somewhere. I want to read to you a passage of Scripture. And about seven more minutes. Uh, so this time we're going to go to Second Peter which talks about all these things that I've just been talking. Don't listen for new subjects because there are none. It's the same. Second uh, Peter chapter 1. First of all, I'll just read you the passage. Peter's writing this at the time of the persecution of Nero. And he's writing to people who are already a believer. So he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. So they're believers. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So there's a particular kind of knowledge he's talking about, knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now we know Jesus came to give us abundant life. We know we're called to live a godly life. And here is the statement, seeing that he has already provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness. All the equipment you'll ever need is already available. And then he says to them, that this is through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, if I was the devil, I'd try and keep people of the true knowledge of God and the true knowledge of Jesus, because if I could do that, I could keep them out of the character of God. I could keep them away from their provision. If God's made provision, then try and get people to be so distracted on other things that they spend very little time fellowshipping with God, very little time really looking at Jesus. If I wanted to pervert the church, if I was the devil, I would get their eyes on everything else except Jesus because he's the glory of the church that fills all in all. And so if I can get them away from the head, if I can get their attention off Jesus, then I can do the work of the Antichrist. Of course, I'm not the devil. 
There may be some mad people who think so. For by these, his glory and excellence, he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. That's the list we just went through. And now come two statements about the effect of letting God at your character. The first statement is in... um, Verse 8, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to reach the end of my life and say, and hear God say, you were unfruitful. And I don't believe you need to be on a platform to be fruitful. I believe every believer can be fruitful. But I do know if you really want maximum fruit in your life, let God at your character and let him establish the list as your own character qualities. Look at those who were a shining example and imitate them and go, Lord, by your spirit, help me live that out. And it changes the kind of people and the kind of community we are. Uh, A friend of mine who loves Greek and who loves scholarship points out that Usually the word you in the New Testament, not in every single case, but most times it's in the plural. We, in the Western world, love individualism and the individual and the individual path, and we forget we're part of a tribe, we're part of a family, we're part of a people, and that the word you, when it's normally used, like you have an anointing from the Holy One and you all know, it's all plural. It's all we, the people of God, have an anointing, not I, Marcus, have an anointing. It's we. And that changes things when you begin to realize I'm amongst you and you're with me and we're joined. And what God's given us, he's given all of us. And so anyway, it goes on to say, uh, be fruitful and, and not have it missing. And then it says, verse 9, he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Now, having forgotten is an interesting thing because the Greek word means to neglect something or to assign it as something insignificant. It doesn't mean that it's not in your remembrance. I have friends who have gone senile. They don't know who they are or who I am. Uh, they're forgotten. It's not, that's not the word. It's more forgetting the things that lie behind you choose to give something else such prominence that you don't give attention to that thing. And here it says that if you don't let God at your character, there will be three principal effects. One will be that you're unfruitful, well, and you'll be short-sighted and blind. Short-sighted means you can't see what's in front of you. You can't see ahead. I'm short-sighted. And so I take my glasses off to read. And there are people spiritually short-sighted. They can't see what's in front of them. They go from counselor to counselor because they can't see cause and effect. 
They can't see that their own behavior is creating their own problems. They can't see they're the ones wrecking their marriage or alienating their, their children. They don't make necessary connection of something that ought to be perfectly obvious. But there's a reason. And the reason is that they're short-sighted because they won't let the Holy Spirit change them. And uh, one time I asked the Lord, what is quenching revival in Australia? And he said, because the people want to be blessed, but they don't want to be changed. And it's a, it's a huge ask to say, Lord, you have the right to make me a new creature. You have the right to make all old things pass away. You have the right to challenge everything I treasure and tell me what to keep and what to discard. But if you won't let God transform you, you can't have all that he would freely give you. It isn't that you earn it, but you can alienate it from yourself. So short-sighted and blind. Blind means there's something right under your nose and you don't know it's there. And Paul prayed that eyes would open so that they would see. And then comes the third thing, that they don't know that they were blood-washed. They're forgotten that they were washed. And I very often talk with people who tell me, that they feel shame or guilt. And sometimes they can be in places where there's been a great doctrine of innocence. You know, people want to be told that they can do what they like with no feast of consequence. And life simply isn't like that. You do reap what you sow. And God doesn't always give you crop failures. Your illegitimate child does not disappear. The debt does not mysteriously evaporate. Uh, You reap what you sow. And so you need to face that your life is a result of your consistent choices long-term, over the long-term. And God will help you, but you have to live with some knowledge. You have to say, Lord, show me. And when you do, you begin to see. One of the wonderful things, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When you become open to God saying, okay, you're, you're my, totally my master, I'm totally in awe of you, totally in love with you, you're my total desire, your eyes open and you start seeing things that you think, why on earth didn't I see it? It's there. And when the light goes on, which we call revelation, it's wonderful. In fact, in fact, as I close, I'll just amplify that a little bit more. There are Different kinds of knowledge in Scripture. One is gnosis, from which we get the word Gnosticism. The idea that you just accumulate information, learn it by rote, spit it out, comprehend what it might mean, and all the accumulated information is your knowledge. That's not the whole picture with God. There's another kind of knowledge, and that is where you get revelation, where the light goes on. The entrance of thy word giveth light. That God speaks something into you, And then he shows you the spirit of it. I'll give you an example of it. Uh, When I was principal of the Bible college, I was going to speak on prayer. I had about 20 points. And the Lord said, if you do, you'll give them a doctrine of prayer and not a spirit of prayer. Because you're not a praying man. You won't impart praying. uh, People talk about love. We know lots of scriptures, lots of songs about love. It's quite another thing to love. God wasn't giving you information on something he wants to walk it into the fabric and warp and woof of who you are so when we go through that character list we are saying Lord build these things into me and give me the revelation of them so that I don't just accept them academically or intellectually 
But show me the spirit of perseverance, of love, of brotherly kindness. Show me the very spirit of it and make me a living example of that spirit at work in a human being. Remember the promises which are that at the end you'll be useful and you'll be fruitful and your life will count for something because that's the promise God gave you and that he'll give you an abundant entrance into the kingdom of heaven. God bless you.